So our practice period of great peace and awareness is continuing all around us. So weaving its little influence, peace and awareness. Even the words have a little influence, don't they? Just to think about peace. And peace really is something that uh, we, we cultivate, we build, we take care of. It's, a, it's, a, it's an accumulation of many, many small gestures. It's not something we wait for. It's something that we are responsible for. So everything we do contributes to the great turning of peace. And when it goes away, we just start doing our actions again and talking about it again. It's something that we do. So let's keep doing it. I am, um, oh, today's Mother's Day. Is that correct? Am I right? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, everyone. Happy Mother's Day. So in our, our, our way of um, working with categories, categories are something we pay close attention to. Categories are something in the far distant goal or the goal of the, the achievement of Buddhas, something that we break free of. We break free of categories or we watch them dissolve. And we also dissolve the categories that we put all other beings and objects into. We put things into categories. We're quite good at it. So us being releasing ourselves from categories that we put ourselves into as part of what practice is about. It's also hugely about freeing other people from the categories we put them in. And like cultivating peace, it's an ongoing, ongoing effort. And the um, accumulation of that effort contributes to the well-being of the whole entire planet. So when I say Happy Mother's Day, it's to all of you. And in the Tibetan tradition of Buddhism, uh, the practice is to see all beings as if they had been your mother in a previous life. And also you see all beings as people you've been the mother of in a previous life. I have been your mother. Uh, Matt Brownlee often talks about how do you do this practice when the rubber hits the road? Well, when the rubber hits the road, somebody is doing something right next to you and you wish they weren't doing that and you kind of want to stop them forcefully, think that that person is your child. How would you treat that person if that's your little baby boy, baby girl, baby non non your gender fluid baby. <laughs> um, how would you do that person was doing something that you wish they would stop? Oh, honey, sweetheart, let's do this instead. <laughs> we treat people differently when we, when we deepen our relationship with them. So today I want to talk about some uh, people in categories called women because it's Mother's Day, and also because I just met a terrific one. So I'm still resonating with the good feeling of having met this terrific woman teacher in Japan. So I'm going to stay with that category, because one way of working with our categories 
in order to free ourselves from their rigid boundaries <coughs> is to work from inside. So from inside the category of woman or female, I speak about these people who are also in this category. And one of them, actually both of them are examples of how to work with that category and the limitations uh, perceived on that category and how to find liberation. So there's, these are two stories of breaking free. But first, I wrote a note. I want to talk about the great, great work we did yesterday. So a bunch of us went out to our land, and which is an hour west, our beautiful 40 acres of open space with a few buildings and a whole lot of possums that have been released onto the land. Thank you, Joe. We didn't see any of the possums, but we felt the benefit of having possum interview. <laughs> <laughs> and we painted and we uh, insulated um, AC pipes with new insulation standing on the roof. I say we. <laughs> <laughs> and we power washed the building. We had lunch. What else did we do? Got stung. <laughs> got stung. I was not going to mention that. <laughs> we, uh, we have other creatures on the land that we share the land with. <laughs> Some of them have tiny little stings. Um, but we had a great, great time. And in two weeks from yesterday, we will have our soft opening. Next week, we have a one-day sitting. In two weeks, we have the soft opening. And then in the fall, we'll have the grand opening. So we're getting ready for that. But everything we do along the way is part of the uh, process. Everything is the opening. And everything that we do out there is completely the complete practice. So when we're out there, it's open. When we're out there, um, every moment is complete and precious. So I have a, a poem about this. And this is from, I'm going to show this book. This is Zen Seeds by Chundo Aoyama, the great teacher I will talk about in a minute. But it's full of teaching stories and poems. She, I think she had them all in her head. And she would just say, that reminds me of a poem. So this is in the book. It's um, a poem from Herman Hesse. And he wrote in The Secret Art of Travel. But this is the secret art of, of being together. This is the secret art of working on the land. So Herman Hesse wrote, to the eyes only looking hurriedly to the goal, the sweetness of roaming cannot be savored. Forests and streams and all of the magnificent spectacles waiting along the way remain closed off. So when we were out there on the land doing our painting and doing our more painting and working on the roof, if we were thinking only of the goal, we would hurry. We would not have fun. To the eyes only looking hurriedly to the goal, the sweetness of roaming cannot be savored. The sweetness of just being there. Forests and streams and all of the magnificent spectacles waiting along the way remain closed off. So all of those things were open to us yesterday. Just standing there looking out at the fields was the complete the completeness of our effort out there. So that is the secret of our practice, actually, to really recognize these moments. Our life is a series of these moments, and each one is complete. 
Each one is precious. But right now, this is a unique moment that will not be repeated again. So that's a sweet feeling. So we've roamed into this place, and this is it. This is the completeness. And our life is full of unexpectedness. So we wish to have one of the categories that would be nice to have is predictability about our life. I'm going to lay out my life. I met this woman a long time ago, um, and she had this great life plan. I'm going to have a baby by this time. I'm going to get that done and then open a business on the peninsula in San Francisco. And then I'm going to franchise it. And then something else I forget because it was so overwhelming. Happy Mother's Day to you. I hope you did all those things. <laughs> I wish life could be like that. Wouldn't it be nice? We make these plans and they're fantastic. But part of our practice allows us to hold them in the category of plans. So here's, a, here's another poem from the great poet Joy Do, who collected the uh, Book of Serenity, which is a, a hundred koans in our tradition. Fantastic. He, he collected these stories. So it was his mind that collected the stories. And then he wrote a poem about each one. And then somebody else came along a hundred years later and, um, oh, excuse me, Blue Cliff Record. He didn't do the, the Book of Serenity. He did the Blue Cliff Record. So cancel what I said a few seconds ago. <laughs> and then another Nguyenwu came on, along later and wrote commentary on both the stories and on the poems. And this is important because the person who brought that collection, the Blue Cliff Record, to Japan was Dogen Zenji, our guy. I like to fill in these things. You guys take what you want, but it's in there, in your, in your memory banks. So here's one of his poems. One, three, seven, five. The truth you search for cannot be grasped. As night advances, a bright moon illuminates the whole ocean. The dragon's jewels are found in every wave, looking for the moon. It is here, in this wave, in the next. One, three, seven, five. Okay, so that's a simple way of saying your life, my life, our lives are not predictable. If we were predicting, we would say, well, two comes after one, and then three, and then four, and then five, six. He says, no, life gives us one, three, seven, five. The truth you search for cannot be grasped. As night advances, a bright moon illuminates the whole ocean. The dragon's jewels are found in every way. The dragons hold the, the truth of reality and jewels under the ocean, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> Looking for the moon, it is here, in this way, in the next. So life is unpredictable, but in our roaming, the moon is illuminating everything, everybody, everything, all the time. That's Ruedo. Each person receives this radiance equally. We're all receiving this radiance all the time, equally. And everybody we look at is, is radiated by this. Irradiated means something different, doesn't it? Each person is radiated. Irradiated. Never know. So I was very fortunate to meet Aoyama Roshi, who's one of the two women I want to talk about who um, 
made their way to this category-free understanding. She's 89, and she's written many books. This is the only one that's been translated into English so far, but she has written many books. She was a master of tea ceremony, master of um, flower arranging, and amazing teacher and nun for, she's 89, she's been uh, living the temple life for 84 years. So the story of how she got into the temple is, is amazing in itself because her parents had a vision that she would be a great Buddhist teacher one day. And so they received a prediction, they received an oracle, a sign when she was five, and they said, this, this is the sign. And so these, her two aunts who lived in a temple and Shikoku came and got her and took her to the temple. And her story goes on from there. Um, and yet, uh, not and yet, she is a force of nature. She's very powerful. She really inhabits her role as a Zen practitioner. She just practiced everywhere, did everything. The story is fantastic. So now she is the abbot of Aichi Senmon Soto in Japan, the big women's training center. So the um, I went to Japan, and part of the reason I was brought to Japan was so that she and I could have an interview, because the Japanese Soto Zen school wants to really address this issue of gender equality. So they thought, let's have an interview with Aoyama Roshi and me. So I thought, okay, <laughs> what a nice thing. And it turned out to be really super fun. I took pictures sitting in my seat and she was like right there, except there was a, it doesn't, I think it doesn't show on the film, but there's a lucite panel between us. So we could look right at each other without masks, but she was very protected. I'm so happy about that. Um, and then back there were all these cameras and people. So I took pictures of that, <laughs> but she was so engaging. It was, you know, I immediately forgot about all of that. And, um, they tried to, the interviewer in Japanese tried to get her to stay in categories. And every time she broke out, <laughs> every time asked, well, what are the role? What, what is it like to be a woman in Japan today? Ha, 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 ha. Every the spacious, mind, the spacious mind is what matters. And then she would give a teaching on, on, on spaciousness and what she's really learned in practice. She wouldn't be put into that box. She said, um, and I was asked, um, like, what do you think? Um, what is the reason that in America, 40% of the ordained people are women, while in Japan, only 3% of the ordained people are women. What do you think? And I was asked this by, they were all, everybody else in the room was a man except her nuns. And they said, well, what do you think we should do about that? And I said, in many different ways, in many different contexts, you should ask them. This isn't about you guys or even me deciding what they need for practice, ask them what they need for practice. Ask them how it is for them. So uh, the concept of who makes decisions that benefit women is an interesting one in our world, isn't it? The concept of who decides what 
would be um, conducive to practice for women or non-binary people um, should be decided by women and non-binary people, don't you think? <laughs> but in our lifetime right now, we're watching an interesting situation where, again, um, decision, major decisions like if you're a mother, when you become a mother, if you're a practitioner, when you become a practitioner, how you become a practitioner are being decided by bodies of largely men. Just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't, that clearly doesn't make sense. And um, she, we were meeting in her beautiful temple, again, uh, Aichi Senmon Soda, big, beautiful temple, and old, beautiful architecture. I'd never been there before. And she mentions just offhandedly in her book that um, when she was a training nun, she trained at various places with great, great teachers, but she also trained there with a teacher she really admired, a man. And she just says, refers, because in those days, women couldn't hold these positions. And now she's the head of it. But um, it's worth pointing out that she fully occupied her category at that time. And women of her generation made tremendous effort to change the rules so that women could... Um, occupy the same positions. They had to, they didn't wait for it to be given to them because nobody's going to give it to you. You have to keep saying, this isn't right, this isn't right. They even had some sort of non-sit-down strikes, <laughs> which is what we're doing all the time. <laughs> and so now she can occupy that position and another reason that I was brought to Japan was to celebrate her because she's also been appointed to, there are two head temples of Soto Zen in Japan. There's Eheiji, founded by Dogen Zenji, and there's Sojiji, founded by his grandson in the Dharma. And they're both really big, and they trade the head role, the Zenji the chief trades back and forth. And for um, 2,000 years, a long time, it's always been a man. And now Aoyama, the first woman, has been appointed to the secondary position in one of those big temples. So this is a really huge deal. And it's easy to, it might be easy to say, well, we've had that kind of equality in the West for a long time, but have we? I, there's some head shaking that's going on. <laughs> anyway, we celebrate her being in the second position at Sojiji. And now that position is not abbot, it's training master. So she'll be training all the monks of Sojiji. Isn't that? She'll be in charge of the training. That'll have an influence. And this issue of um, maybe it will, several people asked me when I, when I was there, does that mean women will be allowed to train at Sojiji? Because so far that hasn't been the case. And the answer from the men is, They've always been able to transfer, to train it, so GG. And then the secondary comment under that koan line is, well, no, they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, women are seen as the source of the trouble when they, when they mix the, um, all the genders together. 
you know, the solution in early Buddhism was just to tamp down no expressions of sexuality whatsoever, zero. That was a good solution. And then it was a good solution. <laughs> of course it didn't work, you know. <laughs> but then when um, upheavals happened, and it's still seen this way in Japan, it was seen as because we brought in women or because we brought in this person, that's the source of the trouble. It's not that the people who are in the monastery need to work with their own understanding. Well, it's these new, these women. And it's still seen that way. And when I was in um, training in Japan, there were a couple of Western women allowed in this temple with a whole bunch of men, just like this group. A couple of Western women were allowed in. And most of the time I was the only Western woman. And then there was one very, very senior Japanese woman was again above all categories. You could not mess with her. <laughs> but um, I was the only Western woman. Why? Because the Roshi had decided that Japanese women were too much trouble because the men just kept getting into relationships or getting dazzled by the women. So I, I found that after I, I've been there for quite a few months. That's why there are no Japanese women here. They're not allowed in, they're troublemakers. <laughs> Not upsetting you guys too much. <laughs> it's Mother's Day. I get to say what I want. <laughs> so she now is beyond all human categories, but she, or not all human categories, but beyond limiting categories, and she's being really widely celebrated. It's beautiful. It's so appropriate. You know, the fruits of a long, long, long life, and. I'm going to order copies of this book because it's it's seeded with her adventures, her comments, but also her adventures. This is where you find out what kind of life she's led. It's amazing. She practiced with everybody. She had so much energy. So in the dialogue between her and me, um, she wanted to know, well, what's it like in America? Is it any different in Japanese translated to me? And she would look at me, she has great, intense stare, beautiful face, intense. <laughs> and so I sat there and I said, well, for example, and then there are all these men, as I said, for example, you know how we chant the names of the ancestors every day, I said to her, as if we do, but we're a city temple. And so we don't chant the names of the ancestors every day. And she said, mm. and I said, for many years now, we have a list of women ancestors, which we chanted for service this morning. And we made that list. A lot of people had input. So there are names of Indian ancestors, women whose stories we know, even just brief stories, because we've had to work really hard to get the stories of the women ancestors. So we have a list of Indian ancestors, then we go into the Chinese ancestors, very difficult to pronounce, but listen to Tricia if you can, she knows how to pronounce it. And then a list of Japanese women ancestors, and we chant that, and it's beautiful. I told her that, and then and she was listening, and then the translator told her what I said, and she burst into laughter. It's like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and she was so, she was like, oh. <clears throat> and then she looked at me very intensely and said, 
is Rion in on it? <laughs> and I said, yes. <laughs> Rion in is on it. And I made a gesture like this, bowing to Rion in and to her. She asked if Rion in was on it. So that's the next story I'm going to tell you. And it's complicated, but um, I, I want you to know. And we can think about why that was out of all this list. That's the one she wanted to ask about. So this nun, Rionin, um, also illustrates this, this journey. She had to inhabit her category because she couldn't get out of it. She was in China in, it's hard to tell exactly when. She was either born in 1646 or 1770-something. It's hard to tell. But let's say she was born in um, 1646 and was talented and beautiful. This is relevant. Beautiful young woman uh, and poet. And so because of her, apparently she was um, the granddaughter of a famous Japanese warrior. So she had some position and she was a, a, an attendant at the at court. So she served, it says she served the Empress of China as one of the ladies of the court. And then the, uh, her beloved Empress died suddenly and Rionian's hopeful dreams vanished. She became, this is, most of this is from the, um, the Hidden Lamp, the story, a collection, a recent collection of koans about women with women teachers <coughs> commenting on them. It's a great book. So this is, the story about her is from that. So she became, it says she became acutely aware of the impermanence of life in the world. And then she decided to study Zen, which is, Parallel to this is how like Dogen Zinji decided to study. He saw the, the smoke from the incense rising at his mother's funeral and he realized impermanence. He wanted to do something real with his life. So he was going to study Zen. Her same impulse. So her relatives disagreed. And since uh, she was very, I was going to say controlled, probably was you know, controlled by her relatives. They said she couldn't leave a monastery. China is very important in the study, in the history of Buddhism because family responsibility is extremely important in China. And they didn't, the whole society didn't like this, what came from India, the, the way Buddhism came from India, wandering itinerant monks with no family ties. That was abhorrent to the Chinese. So in China, um, filial piety developed and all sorts of family relationships in the temple developed in China. And so this makes sense in that context. They said she could uh, start practice after she had three children. So she had the three children. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure how absolutely true this story is, but we'll just take it as if it were absolutely true. So she had three children and then said, I'm ready to go and be a nun. And so she shaved her head, gave herself the name Rionin, and started off on pilgrimage. She came to the city of Edo, now Tokyo, and asked, found a teacher, asked Tetsugyu to accept her as a disciple. At one glance, the master rejected her because she was too beautiful. It's going to cause trouble in my monastery. So again, thinking of this as a fable, uh, and remember, and hearing my little story that it happened in the 20th century, 
was happening big time back then. In order for the monks to really practice, they have to be free of these distractions. Even Aoyama Roshi, I have to say, thought that when I told her that we all practice together in the West, men and women, everybody practices without having to hide their, their being, she thought, oh, I don't know if Japan is ready for that. I said, yes, it is. She said, it'll cause problems. And I said, I was very respectful. I said, we solve those problems. You too can solve those problems. And um, even in, in my early days in Zen, um, it was a problem. The women were considered a bit problematic. Can you imagine? <laughs> and in my early days in Zen, it, before we had things like ethics policies and the, way before the Me Too movement, um, it was free for all, fair game. People were, were just, um, they, here are these attractive people, and I've been sitting for seven days. Wow, you're really attractive. Can we get into a relationship? It's like that all the time. Many abuses of power. And so in my young days in practice, you just have to learn how to deal with that. You do. And so we solved those problems, but many hearts were broken. Many abuses of power took place. And... Um, so that's the modern world. But Japan is going to have to go through that painful phase also, where you put, you recognize the categorical problems people get into and deal with it. You learn how to deal with it, which means equality and fairness, like peace, is built step by step, dealing with this, dealing with that, dealing with this. We can't just say, we'll solve all problems by telling none of you people to have any relationships whatsoever. People don't work that way. It's how shall we learn to communicate? How shall we learn to communicate? Piece by piece by piece. So then Ryonin, very sincere, left Tetsugio. He wouldn't accept her. She went to another master, Hakuo. And Hakuo also refused her for the same reason, reason saying that her beauty would only make trouble. So then, okay, if this is hard for you, I'm going to say something very upsetting now, okay? She, apparently people were ironing in the temple, so she took a hot iron and put it on her face and said, now will you accept me? So she ruined her own beauty to uh, be allowed to practice intensely. And, yeah. So... She wrote a poem after that, which is, in the service of my empress, I burned incense to perfume my exquisite clothes. Now, as a homeless mendicant, I burn my face to enter a Zen temple. So Aoyama said, do you honor Ryonin? Yes, we honor Ryonin. And when she was about to pass from this world, she wrote another poem. Sixty-six times have these eyes beheld the changing scene of autumn. I have said enough about moonlight. Ask no more. Only listen to the voice of pines and cedars when no wind stirs. One of the things she did um, when she finally, she, she did continue practicing and became a great teacher 
and ran a big temple. And in her community, she built bridges and took care of the poor, built orphanages. So she was very, um, very, she remained very energetic. And bridges reminds me, there is a story I wanted to read you from Ayurveda. May I read you one of her little stories? This is called Serving Others as a Bridge. One day, while perusing the Analects of Tang Dynasty Zen monks, I was struck by the lines, helping donkeys to cross and horses to cross. Do you know what that means? In Zen, fast horses are allowed in the door. Also donkeys and mules are allowed in the door. So the bridge to practice, helping donkeys to cross and horses to cross. Even nuns in training sometimes lose sight of the right course. So many different kinds of people are nuns. To be a bridge on which all these believers could somehow cross to the other shore of enlightenment is my work. Those lines taught me my vocation, and I have taken them to heart. Later, when I heard that Emperor Showa had assigned bridge as the theme for the New Year's poetry party at the Imperial Palace, those lines again came to mind. I was not invited to the party. She just says these things. I was not invited to the party. But I wrote a poem on the theme, incorporating those lines. Helping donkeys to cross and horses to cross. Such a bridge I wish to be. Yet I am merely helped to cross. Meaning everything helps her to cross. And she wants to be part of the force field that continues to help others to cross. I found that very beautiful. So these two women illustrate freedom, again, from categories by striving really earnestly. And Aoyama's way is our way, I feel, which is the way of just continual effort, not letting it daunt her, walking across Japan. She would walk across Japan and practice in these temples with no curtains and the snow falling on her head. They're great stories. She just wanted to be free. I have another story of um, our day, which is that um, even, even in our day, it's hard for women to get ordained uh, because they're seen as mothers. And this view, ooh, did I say that in the wrong way? <laughs> she has mothers. <laughs> I love mothers. We've all been mothers to everyone. But um, it's seen as a as a like the most important thing that women are supposed to do, and that practice couldn't possibly be equal to that. And so often people will decline to ordain women because it distracts from what they should really be thinking about. And do you know Sarah Emerson, who's been here, who's my Dharma heir? When Sarah, Sarah and I practiced together at Tassajara for years, she's very sincere, very smart, non uh, person, and she wanted to be ordained. And two male teachers refused to ordain her because she said, I will one day want to have children. And they wouldn't ordain her, including Tension Rev Anderson. It, the category is that strongly embedded. Even in people who are pretty awake, it's very hard for them to break free and see this person can do two things quite well. So I ordained her and gave her Dharma transmission, and she's an excellent priest and teacher 
and also a mother. <laughs> Thank you, Dev. <laughs> so for this reason, for all these reasons, uh, the ferociousness of Rionin's gesture really resonates with women. And, but, the, uh, but the one I really want to hold up is the tenacity of both Rionin and uh, Aoyama Roshi, whose name means Blue Green Mountain, by the way, Aoyama. So breaking free of categories is our goal, but again, let's enjoy the roaming along the way and the exploring from both inside and outside of all these um, made up categories that we create as humans. Let's enjoy the roaming. Let's enjoy being mothers to all beings. Let's enjoy all beings being mothers to us. And not forget, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of work to do and we will accomplish it together. <laughs>